Hey everyone, and welcome to another episode of One Step Beyond. This is a podcast about transformation through leadership. On our show, we have conversations with people who are creating change in business, in their community, and in their lives by choosing to lead. This is about daring to overcome barriers, push past limitations, and reshape our present and our future. Lately, I've been really reveling in our team. It's been really cool. We just hired our 13th person, you know, knocking wood, lucky 13. Everyone on our team is just cool. Like everyone's so different and you've got like you know, different ages represented, different backgrounds represented, different uh, intellectual pursuits represented. It's awesome. And I love how we push each other's thinking and help each other get better and grow. And also are super passionate about growing the company. I'd say since I've started the organization, it is easily the best the team has ever been, but also the the one that I'm most excited to engage with and the one that I feel the most sense of just like, you know, like I can kind of just relax into the, into the chair because I really feel good and I really trust the people that I'm with. So yeah, it's been, it's been great. And it really leads into our conversation today. So today we're talking with Alex on, and what we're going to be talking about is Dungeons and Dragons and leadership. So just to be fair, that's not what the whole conversation is about, but a lot of what we're talking about is linked to what Alex has learned and applied through playing Dungeons and Dragons. Alex is the head of UX for Bosch North America. Bosch offers innovative solutions for smart homes, industry 4.0, and connected mobility. Alex's team is responsible for uncovering user needs across Bosch's myriad of products and services, as well as enabling the growth of Bosch's UX maturity in the region. I've known Alex for a long time, and he loves a good challenge. In his new role in a $12 billion region, there's an opportunity waiting to be uncovered every day. When he's not at work, Alex plays guitar in death metal bands, which is true, and he's played in some really, really cool bands. He also plays D&D, which we're going to talk about, and enthusiastically encourages his young son to do the same. So before we get into the episode, I want to thank our sponsors, SE Electronics. Hey, thank you so much, SE. You've totally been great to us, and we really appreciate it. And if you haven't yet, then please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast. So let's get to the episode. I'm your host, Aram Arslanian, and this is One Step Beyond. everyone and welcome back to the show. Uh, today's guest is Alex on and I am really excited to have him on here. You know, Alex and I have a really long history together, but in a way where it's like we've always known each other at a distance and really liked and respected what the other was doing. But we haven't had a, a ton of time just like, you know, riding side by side together. So it's been interesting to watch Alex develop, not just as a creative person playing in punk and hardcore bands, but also professionally and, you know, has gone on to some really, really cool things, which we're going to talk about today. And as we're getting into this, you know, I, I know if you're a longtime listener and you're from the business world and, and don't have an entry point to punk, you might be wondering like, wow, why does Aram always have so many people from the punk scene uh, on his shows? And the reason is, is that I, I just feel 
there's something about the punk scene that really instills with people an attitude of like how to figure it out. Like if there's a wall, we're going to figure out how to go around it, go over it or go through it. And Alex, for me, is someone who really personifies that. So Alex, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks so much. Aram. I like that. I like that intro and that analogy that you have about the wall, because that's a, a very similar mindset that I've had and a very similar connection that I've always felt that punk had a place in forming business. Um, and it's not something that I think is overt. It's something it's like, um, there's so many things that we bring to the table is whether creatives or whatever background you come from, you have a certain mindset and that, that punk mindset just permeates, you know, if, if you're truly, you know, that's your background and it permeates what you do. I don't think you can ever, you know, shed that skin. It just manifests itself differently and you can see the benefit of it over time, sometimes even retrospectively when you recognize and start to unpack it and go, that really does come down to like that original punk spirit, you know, and maybe other people have, and they don't even recognize it as punk, but they can still kind of have that same, that same mindset. I think it's really cool that they can intertwine and people, you don't have to have a necessarily like a, a bad perception about like a punk mentality, you know, like you can really flip it and it can be, really positive. I mean, from a like PMA, right? Everything you just said there, especially about that, like that attitude, but making sure that attitude is positive. So, you know, one of the things I learned a lot uh, in my growth within the corporate world is when I first came in, I had this like very attitude of critique almost. And that was like a benefit, I believe, of having this kind of like growing up in the punk scene is that you're questioning things around you all the time. But there's a real thin line between questioning things to like criticizing, critiquing things needlessly and endlessly and putting yourself in this kind of position of like, well, I know more. Why? Like, why? Because I listen to youth of today. Like, I don't, I don't know more necessarily. And one of the things I had to really learn is moving away from being overtly critical to more using that in a positive and thoughtful way to, to A, create value and create better outcomes. And B, like people want to hear your ideas when you're not being a jerk about it. Yeah, um, I couldn't agree more. And I feel like I was in a similar position, maybe, where at some point and early in my career, um, a, a boss called me an, an angry young man. <laughs> <laughs> just entertaining, because if you know me, I'm, I'm just such a chill individual, mm-hmm. you know, and just um, maybe angry at like a, a macro level at society, but not like on an individual you know, level, like that's just not, not the vibe that I put out. So I thought that was, that was interesting, but I think you have to have a certain level of self-awareness that comes quicker with some people than it does for others. It takes experience to really, to understand what you're putting out and then how that's being perceived because you may have the best of intentions, but other people's perceptions are their reality. So you may be thinking that you're approaching something with a you know, a critique and you're trying to improve something, but the way it's being received, it's just, it's fallen flat. And so you have to recognize that, hold a mirror up and then be able to change so that you can get your, um, your points across in a way that resonates with people. Yeah, 100%. Well, and so speaking of career, why don't you tell us about what you're doing now? So what's going on for you right now, career wise? And also what was your path to getting there? At the moment, I'm leading the user experience team for Bosch in North America. And that's a new position for me as of just two months ago. 
So first time working in a, in a corporation of, you know, 400,000 odd employees, you know, $76 billion, you know, you know, annually. So it's a, it's a big shift. Um, but user experience is something that I've been passionate about for a long time. And it really feels like, like all roads were leading here. And it's, it's, it's been a culmination of a lot of things like leading up to this. So it's a really exciting juncture for me and really exciting jumping off point to get into this team and to, to build them up and see what impact we can have. My path to user experience zigged here and zagged there. And, it, you know, um, when I was going to school there, I don't believe there, there was any kind of like masters in, in UX that wasn't, that wasn't a thing. Because when I was going to school, I went to school for design, for, for visual arts. So I was a graphic designer. And one of the things that early on I recognized set superior graphic design from inferior graphic design was its focus on users' needs and just recognizing design as a means of communication and not an, not an art form. Like designers may come into it thinking like they're artists and we're not because we have clients and we have communication objectives that are given to us and people are paying us. So when I create art, I create art for myself. When I design, I'm designing for someone else. So there's an artistic element, 100%, but it isn't art, it's, it's business. We're getting paid to, to do something for someone. But recognizing early on that design is communication. Early on, I focused on the visual side, but over time I really started to just really focus in on unpacking why things worked or why things didn't work. And I really got interested. You talked about critiques earlier. I loved critiques in college. I loved being able to look at other people's work or have people look at mine, analyze it, pull it apart, tell me why things weren't working, why they were. And it's that idea of like mental deconstruction and breaking things down to the bare elements that really resonated with me a lot. And so over the years, I got more interested in the underpinnings of design and the structure. So that's where I started to get into more, you know, information architecture and understanding like like human machine interaction. And I got more into the strategic side of how you build something and less into the polishing side. And I was quite happy to tinker around in sort of low fidelity environments rather than taking things to a high fidelity environment. And I could recognize that there were other people who have more passion maybe in that area. So I could partner if you're not interested in the information architecture or the taxonomy of something. Great. Don't worry about it. I'll handle that. If you're really interested in skinning something and making it look pixel perfect and, and whatever, then that's a perfect marriage. I'll do the stuff you don't want to do. You do the stuff that I don't want to do right now. You know, so that's where I started to, to sort of diverge. And over time, I got more interested in expanding that into kind of DEI initiatives and just inclusivity. And I started to push further and further and see what are areas where people are being underrepresented in, um, in the design field and from a user perspective. And so that got into like user testing for blind people and just trying to push inclusivity within organizations so that we could consider what it's like potentially for our users who we're ignoring at the moment, because it's just, we have internal biases and we're not thinking about something like designing something from someone who has a, a handicap of some description. So over time went from sort of graphic design, leading teams 
and working in the automotive sector for a long time. A lot of it was post sale stuff. I didn't do a lot of marketing. It wasn't a lot of, a lot of people go to agencies when they're, when they're designers and they do a lot of marketing. That really wasn't um, my field. I was doing a lot of stuff that was sort of post sale. And ultimately I, I broadened my, my interests and my experience. And I started to think about design in a more holistic sense and really getting to design thinking and how can I use the way that my, we talked about mindsets earlier. How can I use my mindset and how I approach solving something visually into more abstract ideas, like from a strategy perspective. And so that's when I started getting into things that were process oriented, things that a designer, that you don't go to school to teach someone how to build a better process. But at the end of the day, we're designing something. It's you're designing a process. It's just you're not designing something that's a you know a beautiful artifact or an object. You're designing the way someone interacts with something, and that still gave me that that fire, you know, that challenge. And especially if you don't know something about something, then you go into it with this like beginner's mind, and then you can add this value because you're ignorant of the subject, so you ask questions that other people wouldn't normally ask. And all of this sort of, I think, mindset brought me to where I am today, I would say. Mm, yeah, that's a, a great story, fascinating story. So for our people who wouldn't know, can you just tell us a little about, about user experience? Like, what does that mean? It's, it's simple, but it's complicated. Mm. Um, at, at, in the simplest terms, user experience is any sort of interaction that a user has with a brand like at, at any level, whether you're interacting with someone, it will, I'm going to take an example just to kind of bring it to life. Um, you're shopping for a car. So your interaction with the brand is any sort of touch point. So you're seeing advertising, you're going into the dealership, you're talking to associates. What's that experience like? You're on their website, you're navigating and building, building and pricing your vehicle. What's that experience like? You own the vehicle. What's that like? everything you're doing service on your vehicle, any kind of touch point across the whole life cycle of a product or service or any, anything that involves a human interacting with something. That's why it's like so broad and, and somewhat nebulous, I guess. Like it's hard for people to pin down and say, what it is, what, what do you do? We do a lot of things, but under that umbrella of how are people interacting with your brand or your product or your service, and are they getting what they need? Because they're setting out to do something. And are you able to deliver upon what their needs are? That's kind of a, a broad approach to what it is. Yeah, and it's fascinating. What I find interesting is when you mentioned earlier how much you love critique. You know, when you were in school, you loved critiques. And so you like critiques of your work and you like to be able to critique other, others' work or also witness that process. Because it sounds like so much of what you're doing is pulling things apart and figuring out, okay, how can we reimagine this or rebuild this or augment this to make it uh, even stronger user experience at all the different touch points? So it sounds like being very comfortable with critique, either giving it or receiving it or being part of that process is a really important part of what you do. Yes, absolutely. I think it's important for anyone. I don't think it is important for anyone in any kind of creative endeavor. Um, and really, it's, it's important for anyone, period. Like you have to be able to hear the unvarnished truth and you have to be able to add value by telling people the unvarnished truth. And of course, there are ways to go about doing this that are going to 
you know, engender respect. And there are ways to go about doing it where you're just going to piss people off, even if you're telling them, you know, the truth and what you, so we all know that, you know, soft skills, it's, it's certainly huge in, um, in getting your, in getting your message across. But yeah, certainly in, in UX, it's, it's all about listening, right? And then synthesizing what you've heard and then delivering that. We're counselors. Like we don't have in the UX field, you typically don't have authority. You're working with teams and you're counseling them on the research that you're conducting and where it points them to. What they do with that information is ultimately up to them. So it's important that we're able to offer critiques and offer our insights in a way that resonates with them and in a way that they can recognize the value and they want to then take that to action. Because you can do all the research in the world and say it points to X, Y, and Z, but if you haven't convinced them you know, well enough or you haven't delivered it in a way where it really impacts them, they, can, they don't have to do anything with your research. It's up to them. Yeah, uh, man. So when, what you're saying there reminds me a lot of not just the work that I do now, but also reminds me of back when I was doing uh, work in addiction and mental health. You can have all the degrees you want. You can know all of the psychological practices and, and all the underpinnings. You can know all of the health services, all of the uh, all of the addiction services. At the end of the day, if you can't show up as just being someone who's like a trusted partner in getting someone where they need to be, it doesn't matter. And that sense of like someone feeling that you're this person with these immense resources that can help them, but you're a person that they're connected to, that they can connect to, that they can believe in, and that you know they know you believe in them. That sounds like that's really at the heart of your approach. Absolutely. And when, when I'm hiring a team, that what you're talking about, the sort of academic background versus that ability to, um, to influence, mm-hmm. like I'm much more interested in the soft skills side, mm-hmm. of, side of thing as, I, as I'm ramping up a team. Um, because there's always additional training and certificates and courses and, you know, academic learnings that you can embark upon if you're, if you have a deficit in that area, but how do you, it's much harder to turn someone around from a soft skill perspective. They have all the knowledge in the world, but they can't convey it in, in a way. And you have to work on that. That's so much harder to deal with. So I try and find people who have a really good vibe and, and fit from a soft skill and like personality perspective. I weigh that heavier than I do like the academic side. Yeah. You know, uh, so I was talking to Patrick um, about your pre-interview and he had mentioned, you know, when talking about collaboration, Alex really took it in a really interesting direction. Uh, Do you mind if we talk about Dungeons and Dragons? I would never mind if you talk about that. (laughs) (laughs) I was dying laughing because again, knowing you again, we've known each other for a long time, but not to a huge amount of depth. I was dying. I was like, no way. That's so wild. So for the audience, when we ever are going to have someone on the podcast, we always do a pre-interview because we want to make sure that people are prepped for the conversation, but also where we can get those real gems. One of the things that Alex had mentioned was that he he's learned so much about collaboration through playing the game Dungeons and Dragons. I imagine everyone knows what Dungeons and Dragons is. And if you don't, then by all means, go up and, and look it up because it's a great game. But Alex, tell us about this. Tell us about how Dungeons and Dragons has helped you really understand collaboration. Man, I was just playing our, our weekly game last night. And I was, again, like thinking about it in, in preparation for today. I think it kind of goes back to what we talked about at the beginning, that kind of mm-hmm. mindset, where even if you might not even be aware of it until mm-hmm. you take a step back and analyze it. And then you see the sort of Venn diagram of like how these things all come together. And I think the same thing can be true of, of playing Dungeons and Dragons because 
you're stronger when you enter a dungeon if you have a party of diverse members right in your group if you go into a dungeon or embark on any kind of quest and you have five barbarians for instance for instance all coming at th things with the same aptitudes right the same skills the same you know mindsets when you try and solve something you try and embark on any kind of endeavor you're looking at it with such like a myopic you know perspective you know everything's through the lens of this one archetype and if you don't have the wizard and the cleric you know you don't you don't have these additional you don't have a dwarf because you know everyone's a, a human barbarian or whatever you don't have the goliath or or whatever it may be or the tabaxi if i get real nerdy <laughs> Then you're coming at it with such a real, um, you, you can only see like through this, this one, this, this one sort of perspective. And that doesn't help you because you're going to get thwarted, you know, by whatever, you know, foes that you face and you don't have the magic spells to use, you know, to, to walk on water or to fly or to shoot the fireball or whatever you need to do. You've got your sword, your, lo your loincloth, you know, and like your muscles. Like that can only work so far. And there's a time and a place for a barbarian. Absolutely. But when you enter a dungeon and you have just like, so last night, someone in my party, they saw a puzzle that needed to be solved and they figured out a way to solve it where I may not have even have recognized that it was a puzzle that needed solved in the first place. And therefore I never would have even thought of how to solve it in that manner. But because this person was a different class, different race, and a different person that I'm playing with, right? Like in, um, in real life, they approach things with a different mindset and they see things differently than I do. I recognize looking back, like every time we solve something or we, we kind of level up, it's because of the strength of the diversity of our team. And there's a time and a place for each one of us to have that sort of super skill, you know, or that attribute that makes us different. And to bring that to the forefront and that unique trait can make us better, can take us to that next level. And the same thing as I'm building my team right now at work, part of what I'm talking to them about is as we're bringing people on board and as we're, we're hiring people, I want to look for diversity. We need to have the overlap of, of course, they have to have the professional experience and like they need to be SMEs in what we're doing. But outside of that, I want as much diversity as possible. Like what's the super skill you know, that they can have so we can come together like Voltron, you know, and, and everyone has their own different, you know, skill that they bring to the table. Or as my four-year-old would think, maybe Power Rangers, I assume, you know, and like, how can they come yeah, together yeah. and what's, what are their unique skill sets? And to me, that's like, and then background, like, whether it's like, you know, you know, sex, religion, you know, orientation, you know, like age, experience like i don't want a bunch of senior people on, on the team i want to mix i want people who have been around who have that experience but i also want people fresh out of college too i want the team to have that that diversity so that the younger people can learn from the older people the older people can learn from the younger people and we've got different pros and cons of where you are in your history you know and your work experience and your life experience and i think it would be really short-sighted to just replicate I've, I mean, I've seen it like before, like what happens when you just kind of replicate like one perspective and you hire people in your image or you hire people in the sort of the business's ideal. Oh, this person's like an all-star, let's get 10 all-stars. That can be a recipe for disaster, you know, like if we make them all, all this way. Um, so yeah, I think there's so much in, in how, so much overlap in problem solving and strength through diversity. Um, 
whether it's being in a band or whether it's playing Dungeons and Dragons or whether it's just solving creative problems at work. Diversity is the key. Yeah, I, I love that. And the specificity of how you talked about it is what really matters to me. So when we think about like diversity and inclusion, these are really big topics that are being spoken about a lot in the business world. But outside of like the hype of the business world, they're just big topics, period. And they're super important topics. What I believe a lot of people have concerns about is they're spoken about in such like marketing terms in terms of like, we care about diversity and inclusion or like, you know, we're a diverse company. And it's always kind of these big, broad statements that are like, you know, have some kind of visual. You're speaking in really practical terms. And I think like the practical terms to me matter so much because it's the Oh, and this is how we do it. And this is actually the outcome. One of the things that was the most impactful for me in a, in a negative way was um, I was sitting in a, in a meeting one time in uh, Chicago, this really senior level leader, she was the only leader, uh, female leader in the room. And I tell this story a lot in this podcast is as part of her business update, talked about diversity and all the work she'd been doing within her segment and all of the hires that she brought in and how they did it. And then actually was able to come up with like a numerical value of how much value it brought to the business in terms of like growing their market share. Really, like really impressive. And everyone else at the table totally ignored her and were on their phones. And literally the boss afterwards, when I said, hey, like, why did you do that? The boss was like, I don't really care about all that kumbaya stuff. You know, I just like, you know, all of that's just a distraction from what we're trying to do. And I just thought like, gosh, what's it going to take for people to really take this seriously? And even when you have a leader who's so not just well-intentioned, but so well-thought and so practical, and they can actually show the value to the company, how that stuff can get just pushed away. And that's why I believe like these like really practical conversations and, and thought processes about getting diversity of thought, getting diversity of group, getting diversity of, you know, of all the different aspects that you just talked about, but also being able to show, well, what's the value proposition so that the business world will take it seriously. So that's what I loved about what you just said there. Yeah. I mean, and also I was thinking about last night, I, I fireballed 17 hobgoblins and I was thinking that would be so much more hollow if all of us were wizards with fireballs and any one of us could have done it. But the fact that it was a third level spell, I was the only person who could do it. You know, it made it that much more miraculous and that much more of an interesting thing that happened. Mm -hmm. you know? And just it's boring, right? If you're if you're all the same. And an interesting thing that you talked about with that that woman showing the ROI of diversity, is that the necessary road that we need to go down or not? Do we have to justify diversity through finance? Or is that a fool's errand? Because that's what we've been trying to do in the past, right? Like this is the logic is gonna show show the board that you can make more money you know, to the shareholders, if you have diversity, but is that really the appropriate way to go about things? And I'm not saying I have an answer, but I think it's a question worth asking. Well, and it's a great question because in that story, it didn't matter. Like the thinking was, if I show it from a, here's what I did, like, this is what we're able to achieve as a result of this, this should make a difference. And it didn't make a difference. They didn't care at all. It still got schluffed aside. So it was a well, really well-intentioned strategy and, and from a, a wonderful, wonderful ethical leader. And you could see the frustration of like, damn, what's it going to take? And I have no answer either. What will it take? Trying to justify doing the right thing is always, is always a slippery slope. My sense is more like, 
I just want to have practical steps to doing things instead of talking about things in broad strokes. I'm always, I always divert more to the practical. Anything around like how we push human interactions further, I want to move out of the theoretical to the practical because I think it's easy to play in the theoretical and, and talk about good intentions. And I think those good intentions are probably true for most people. But getting out of good intentions and getting into practical steps is what matters to me. And I, I get a little concerned about justifications, although I do think justifications have a space when you are asked tough questions, you should be able to give real answers to. But I, I don't have a good solid, I don't have an answer is what I'll just say. But I do believe around diversity of thought, diversity of, of being, practicality matters to me a lot. Yeah, I think that's enough. Like for me is like the practical application and the benefits as mm -hmm. opposed to necessarily always trying to tie it to, you know, a financial number. What I'm real interested in and something that you talked about around your background is do you need to be an expert in your field to lead a function? So for example, not just your field, but let's say if you were leading HR, do you need to be an expert HR person? Or if you were leading finance, do you need to be an expert uh, finance person? Do you need to be an expert in what you're leading to be an effective leader from your perspective? In a word, no. Leadership is a, is a skill and a trait unto itself. And if you can lead one area, you should be able to lead another area. If you bolster yourself with deep SMEs in that area, if you have a strong team behind you, then they should be able to empower you with the knowledge that you need to make the right decisions. You, you got to back it up and say, like, what's your role as a leader? And if you're, if you're a servant leader and your role is to essentially unlock the potential in your team, and to remove roadblocks and allow them to, to flourish, then I don't think you need the deep SME knowledge to enable your team. And that, that's how I look at leadership is essentially like enablement for the people working with you to shine and kind of be their best. I think it would be difficult, certainly, to go into an area that you know absolutely nothing about and be socially even accepted, right? The first thing people are going to say, who's, who's this cat? They don't know, you know, X from Y, like, where did they come from? But you also see it, people, maybe they're leading an area in one vertical and they move to a completely different vertical that they have no background. Or maybe they go from healthcare to automotive, you know, maybe they go from consumer packaged goods to, to something, you know, like completely different, right? Like, but they were able to lead and show results in that area. You know, chances are that they'll still be a great leader in this in this other area. It's going to be some ramp up time. When you mentioned like being a leader is a is like kind of like an art in and of itself. So if you hold up a mirror for yourself for your own leadership, what are the things that you're hoping you're going to see? I think it comes down to what I said about enablement. I expect maybe an, a way for me to answer this is what I expect my leader. So I expect my leaders to grant me autonomy. I expect my leaders to to be there for me and unlock doors when I don't have the keys to those doors to remove roadblocks for me, um, to answer questions when I don't, you know, have these, these answers to push me in areas that I'm uncomfortable in, or I need push or to identify areas for me that they think I should move into and to use their knowledge and expertise, which is above mine in whatever area that, that they're in to better me, right. To allow me to succeed in ways that I'm unable to succeed without their help. And that's what I want to reflect down to my team. I want to be able to, at the end of the day, if we have like an annual review or something, 
I need to be able to say my team, my team should say that I add value to them as individuals. And if they can say that, I think this is the most succinct way of really putting it is if, if my teammates can say, yes, Alex adds value to me, here's why, then that's, that's it. Like I'm, I'm doing my job as a leader and how I add value is different to different people. So that's where it gets maybe a little harder to get super specific, but I think just adding value to your, to your team and uh, enabling them and being a servant leader is, is what I would like people to perceive of me and the way I try to carry myself. What I liked about your answer there was that, hey, if you're a leader, uh, you should be essentially able to lead anywhere. Uh, at the same time, you know, like you don't want to jump into something where it's just like too much of a grind where you know nothing. And if you do, that's okay, but you better like be able to like pick up things pretty quickly. What do you think that the the value is versus people who approach business like, oh, I've got to win. I got to win the day. Like I totally got to win the day versus trying to just constantly level up. I think that's again, one of those things that maybe comes with age mm-hmm. because I see it more in potentially in, in younger people who are, um, maybe just graduating from, from college or people, maybe they're, you know, like in, in your twenties where people are really eager to get that next promotion, get that next raise, like get that next title change. They're impatient. A lot of that. I sound like an old man. They're impatient, you know, but (laughs) I see that kind of impatience in looking for short-term wins instead of looking for long-term gains. Everything that we're doing in life, it's we're, we have to be playing the long game, right? We can't be looking for these like short-term gains. And just yesterday, I was talking about the McKinsey um, loyalty loop. I think it's like it costs like five, to, on average, like five times more to acquire a new customer than it does to you know sell to an existing customer and keep and you know when you have people in this in this loyalty loop. And to me, this loyalty loop—that's the long-term end goal that you're after—is to have people in the ecosystem who are loyal to you over the life cycle and they continue to come back to you versus a short-term gain of just selling to someone and then boom, they're, they're off and you have poor user experience. You don't retain them or, you know, your price is too high. So you made that one sale and it was great because you got a lot of money, but they're not coming back and they're not, you know, they're looking somewhere else. So you can see the sort of short-term versus long-term thinking manifest in so many different areas, whether it's in business or whether it's in personal development. Again, I don't want to sound like an, like an old man, but it's like, you got to slow your roll you know, and like, and look for that end, that end term, you know, that long-term thing and, and not just focus on what's in front of you right now. And that can be difficult for some people. And hopefully it's something that people learn as they get older. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to relate this back to music for a sec. You can be a Walter Schweifels. Anything Walter puts out, people are going to pay attention to because he's got that loyalty cycle, right? Where people are like, He's conducted himself admirably as a musician. He's put out pretty consistently great records. Not every record is as good as every other record, but it's like consistently like great, if not very, very good. So anything he puts out, people perk their ears up versus someone who put out like a great record one time in the 80s and has been like trying to like make a career out of it and is like on every podcast and is like blasting social media and it's super annoying. It's like literally nobody cares what you're you're doing. You had that one win in the 80s and you're trying to live off of that one win. Who cares? I really care about the person who's like consistently creating, who's taking risks, who's like invested in young artists, like the person who's a part of a community versus like someone who's like a weird, like consistent marketing campaign about that one thing they did that one time. Yeah. 
I think we both know what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah. But like it was a hell of a win in the A's. Oh man. <laughs> I mean, it's it's the win. It's it's the win, man. But that was that was then. And like I also think of like an Ian Mackay, right? Like you know, like these are people who have like created like these ongoing careers where it's like, oh, anything you do, I'm going to pay, I'm going to pay um, some level of attention to, even if it's like, oh, you put something out versus these like that one win. And I think that idea of like leveling up and being consistent and trying to consistently get better playing the long hand is the best way to do not just your career. I think it's the best way to do life. For sure. 100%. All right. So as we're getting close to the end here, I've got three questions for you. So the first is, if you were to think of in your own leadership, what's your North Star? What's the kind of the code that you live by as a leader? Okay. Trust. Mm. Trust, I think, is the, is the code. I want, I expect to be trusted and I extend trust. And I don't like the idea of quote unquote earning trust. I think trust is there to be given first. If someone breaks your trust, then of course that enters the, uh, the earning cycle and they, you got to maybe make amends potentially, but right out the gate, I'm not cynical or skeptical of people. I give them the benefit of the doubt. So I like to extend trust early on in any kind of relationship. And I expect the same to be done of me because you see the, the benefits and the speed at which you can move. Of course, when you have that, that trust that goes between you and, and your reports or you and your, your boss or whatever. So I think trust is my North Star. Second question is, what is your top three kind of character to play in d and I'm having a lot of fun right now with my dwarven sorcerer. So I think, I'm, you know what analogy? I'm really into guitar pedals mm-hmm. at the moment. And um, that's something that I've always kind of improved upon and, and been trying to refine like the best way to use pedals. Mm-hmm. and really expanding the pedals that I use. And now I'm like building a second pedal board and I'm really, really getting into pedals a lot, but it's been, you know, over time. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of the same thing with magic, like, like just exploring the different spells, how to use them, mm-hmm. you know, when, when they're going to, that one spell is going to come in handy that one time, you know? So like, should you have that as like one of the spells that, you know, so I'm really enjoying kind of playing sorcerers. I like a, a good old barbarian for sure just because I'm so into, you know, Conan and just like sword and sorcery and that whole fantasy thing. I think it's hard not to just want to play a barbarian as like your first character. Um, and so that's definitely where I've been. And probably the third character I'd be interested in is um, my friend is playing an assassin right now. And he has some really, some really cool features with that class. Uh, with like being sneaky and like kind of like benefits that he can get with the assassin class. So those are probably my top three classes. I love it. All right. So the last question is, is there anything that you want to add in that you want to leave us with that you want the audience to, to know about you or to know about leadership or to know about what you do? That's a tricky one, but I think to, just because I haven't prepared any, any final Jerry Springer final thoughts here, <laughs> but I think like uh, looking back over, over our conversation, trust like just getting back to that north star like the idea of trust and autonomy and just believing in people like that's the most that you can do for for anyone i think that that you lead or that you work with or uh, whether there's any kind of like uh hierarchical relationship or not um 
just to trust and give people autonomy and give people the benefit of the doubt. That's all they want at the end of the day. Like you've, you've hired someone or they've been hired to do the thing that they do. So allow them to do it to the best of their ability. Don't, don't block them. How are you adding benefit to this person? How are you adding value? That's, I think, what we always have to be thinking about in any kind of interaction that we have and any kind of relationship that we have. Are we adding value to this, to this person? Awesome, man. Well, thank you so much. Our conversation today has been really inspirational to me. There's a lot of stuff that I'm not surprised that we have similar takes on. There are a lot of things, though, that you shared and really pushed my thinking, and I appreciate that. Everyone, please, you know, take the time to uh, connect with Alex on LinkedIn. And then, man, thank you so much for your time today. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. I really enjoyed it. And also, if anyone wants to nerd out on D&D, hit him up because I bet you he'd love to talk about it. Heck yeah. All right, everyone. We'll see you in the outro. And Spencer, drop the beat. And that was a great conversation. Uh, Alex, so well-spoken, very, very thoughtful. You know, at the end of our discussion, I almost didn't have anything to say because I was like, damn, like I felt everything had been said there. It's really cool coming up in punk and hardcore and then knowing people in their bands and then years later seeing them as professionals. And as I said on, at the beginning of the show, I've kind of had a distant relationship with Alex. You know, we live in different parts of what we live in different countries and we live in different parts of North America. We haven't been super close, but it's been very cool watching him grow and develop as a person and as a professional. And I got to say in that 40 minutes that we talked, I learned a ton. So Alex, thank you so much. Maybe it'll be time that I, uh, I get myself a whole barbarian character going. You made it sound very, uh, very appealing, especially the loincloth and the, you know, the muscles and the swords. I don't, I don't know. I could see myself getting into that space. For everyone out there, listen, when you're building up a team, I know most of us are hired for our expertise of what we do. You know, I'm a therapist, I'm an engineer, I'm, you know, a financial advisor, whatever it is. The art of leadership is something that, yeah, you can go to a course for, but that's not going to be enough. It is about a constant evolution of your style, understanding other people, understanding yourself, understanding the world that you're in. Alex is an incredible example of someone who really came in and has honed his skills as a leader. And so much of that is holding up a mirror and developing himself. So I encourage anyone, there isn't a leadership space that you shouldn't strive for, but it's not about the position. It's about in striving for that, how are you growing yourself so that you can add value and do great things. So as we're closing off, I wanna remind everyone that we're produced and edited by Spencer Priest, recorded by Patrick McKechnie, and designed by Tammy Levy. So we will see you next time, everyone. Thank you for joining us. And this has been One Step Beyond. What?